Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by John DePew. How's it going? Who are you, John? Well, I currently work in Christian education at a church nearby. Um, I am a graduate of Duke Divinity School. I did my dev here about two years ago. So. And John is co-authoring a book with Douglas Campbell on the word justification in Paul. That's right. And John is engaged to a certain Laura Robinson. Mm. So today we're discussing one of my favorite articles on the book of Romans. Richard Hayes, Psalm 143 and the Logic of Romans 3. Not the most sexy title, but this article is eight pages long and it rocked my world when I first read this. Yeah, I really like it too. I feel like by the end of the article, it's just clearly a slam dunk, um, especially in, in response to certain older approaches to the righteousness of God. It's, it's pretty compelling. So, Right. So this article is dealing with this phrase that shows up a bunch in Romans, the righteousness of God, dikaiosune theu. So the really big picture, zooming way out, Hayes is arguing that Romans is not about answering the question, how do I get to heaven, but is concerned with justifying God to humanity. Yeah, so Hayes is, is picking up on certain insights from uh, Christer Stendhal. He, he's, one of his works has appeared on this show before, right? Our very first That's episode. Right. Yeah, so he's drawing on, on Stendhal, who is critical of, of certain readings of Paul's letters in general that um, frame it in terms of a story about how I individually get saved. Hayes is, is pushing back on that kind of reading and saying, no, this is actually really about God's activity and God's justice at work. So this phrase, the righteousness of God, is really important to the letter of Romans, no matter what reading you adopt. The first chapter, Paul does the usual epistolary introduction and then announces the theme of the letter. And this is verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, epistos eis piston. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The theme of the letter is God's power for salvation, displaying God's righteousness. So we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of the Pistis Christi debate. The Pistis Christi debate being whether or not Paul is talking about faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Hayes has been a major figure in that debate, siding with the faithfulness of Christ, but we're just not going to have time to do that. And I don't think we're going to be able to do justice to it in this podcast. Right. We'll probably translate these passages in the spirit of Hayes or leave them ambiguous as they come up. So there's a long history prior to Hayes' article of primarily Protestant readers of Paul who read righteousness language as basically something that God has that can be imputed to an individual, right? So, so righteousness is actually kind of like a resource that God has that people can have access to when they decide to believe in Jesus. So that's, that was sort of a, a dominant Protestant reading 
um, up to that point in, in the early 80s when Hayes wrote the article. And it's still a pretty common reading of righteousness language in Paul today. Right. For Lutheran or Protestant interpreters, the righteousness of God is a status that is conferred to people upon their decision to believe. Sometimes it's described as a substance or a thing which God gives to humans. One can think of here the uh, alien righteousness, which is kind of Luther's terminology. It's, it's basically getting at the same sort of thing. Righteousness is this thing, or I like the language of resource, that God has that we can access um, once we decide to have faith in Jesus. Right, so the revelation of God's righteousness is all about this coming to light of a substance or status that God is going to be imputing, ascribing to Christians. One of the first big modern critiques of this construction of righteousness was expressed by Ernst Käsemann, that is, in German, serious cheeseman. Ernst Käsemann came along in the early 60s, and this is primarily when he was starting to challenge the traditional, the traditional Protestant approach to uh, the righteousness of God. And what he argued was that this phrase is concerned primarily with God's own righteousness, which reaches out to humanity and saves them, and then ends up establishing God's lordship over all of the things that God has created. But for Kazamon, we can only really get this by carefully attending to apocalyptic thinking or apocalyptic discourse within Judaism. And when we do that, we find that Dekaiosinitha, or the righteousness of God, is already there in full. Like, it's, it's right there. We can just pick up that text and read it, and we get what the righteousness of God means. And that's really what's going on for Paul. Kazaman argued that righteousness was a ready-made technical term that Paul appropriated from, quote-unquote, apocalyptic discourse. That is, there is this kind of literature, this kind of conversation going on within Judaism that has this preset technical term, the righteousness of God, that Paul is drawing on, that refers not to some substance or resource or status, but to God's own saving power. That is, the righteousness of God is God's power to come and save humanity. Now, this was, of course, disputed by other scholars, most notably Rudolf Bultmann, who came along and flatly denied any apocalyptic context for understanding the righteousness of God language in Paul. He just thought it didn't really matter for understanding Paul and that Paul wasn't actually drawing on that stuff. So it's not in play for Paul. Boltman made the argument about whether or not this is a technical term we can find in Jewish apocalyptic literature. But the problem was that Boltman's critique of Kazemann ended up drawing attention away from the central theological claim that Kazemann was making, which was that the phrase was all about God's power, God's saving power arriving in our midst. And then we get to E.P. Sanders, involved with most good conversations about Paul. In Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which we did an episode on, although not about this part of that book, Sanders treats the use of the word righteousness, tzedakah, in... Qumran. And he points out that throughout this literature, righteousness is glossed, defined, or used in parallel with the word goodness, the word compassion, the word loving kindness, and often mercy. This 
This doesn't seem to be a technical, specific term, but one of several words for describing the virtues or positive attributes of God. So one particularly famous passage um, is in the community rule, 1QS, um, section 11. Uh, and it reads, As for me, if I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my eternal salvation. If I stagger because of the sin of flesh, my justification shall be the righteousness of God, which endures forever. So here we have two lines in neat parallelism. If I stumble, if I stagger, salvation, justification, mercies of God, righteousness of God. And the thing to notice here is that the mercies of God and the righteousness of God, this is describing an attribute of God upon which the community at Qumran are depending for their salvation. Yeah, so Sanders noticed that the righteousness of God wasn't really a technical term of apocalyptic discourse in Second Temple Judaism. It was actually just one of many terms that are getting at the same sort of thing. They're used interchangeably. And in discussing the mercy, righteousness, loving kindness, compassion, and goodness of God, the Qumran scrolls often are relying on the language of Psalms. And this will be very important for Hayes. Yeah, so what Sanders opens up for Hayes is the possibility of going back to those Old Testament psalms to see how righteousness language is being used there and to see how Paul is using the psalms in his own letters. And Hayes notices that the same thing is true of Paul. When Paul is talking about the righteousness of God in Romans 3, he makes the same move. He brings up a bunch of psalms. His argument is laced with allusions, references, and extended quotations of the psalms. So sure, Qumran and Paul are sharing a sort of environment where they have common language about God, but both of them are drawing on the psalms. And so maybe the first step is to go look at the psalms and see how they are using the language of the righteousness of God. So Hayes realizes that it might be worth going back and seeing if certain OT psalms could help us discern what Paul actually means by Nicaeusenetheu in his text, specifically in Romans 3. Now we enter in to Richard Hayes's article. His positive argument is in two movements. First, the internal logic of Romans 3. He's going to do this close reading of the chapter as a coherent whole. And then the role Psalms 143 can play in informing us about the backdrop of Paul's argument. Why Psalms 143? Because he quotes it in Romans 3. So what scholars tend to do wrong straight away when they read Romans 3 is that they actually end up dividing the chapter into discrete sections where you can read each part as basically its own kind of compact argument. And so what happens is you don't actually read those sections in relation to one another. This means, for example, that Paul's use of or righteousness of God language in 3.5 wasn't actually read in relation to something like 3.25, where that same terminology comes up again. Romans isn't a collection of Bible studies. <laughs> those big headings that set apart sections of Romans, you need to ignore those. This is a letter that somebody sent to a church. It didn't have neat, pericope divisions. So, if you have the same word used in 3.5 and 3.25, those words, contra what we're calling the Protestant reading, shouldn't mean radically different things. If you have to translate these 
in completely different ways, which a lot of translations do, you're probably getting something wrong. Yeah, this is actually a pretty strange tendency within Pauline scholarship, but a lot of scholars have done it, especially prior to Hayes' essay. So what he's urging us to do is to read Romans 3 as containing a sustained argument that extends the whole way through the chapter. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to interpret Romans 3 correctly. So what's going on in Romans 3? Okay, end of chapter 2. Paul has argued that the Jew has no reason to boast in possession of the law because, look, Jewish people have done bad things too. This opens him up to the objection that he straight up says at the beginning of the chapter that does this mean then that there's no advantage to being Jewish? Is God's covenant, the eternal covenant with Israel, pointless? Is God now backing out of this special covenant relationship he had with Israel? The question Paul asks at the beginning of this chapter is, does God's decision to extend salvation to the Gentiles, irrespective of Torah observance, make God unrighteous? And Paul in Romans 3 is going to argue no. So Paul's addressing the issue of the apparent special status of the Jewish people vis-a-vis God. So he's trying to be clear in case there's any confusion about the importance of the particularity of uh, Jewish identity as grounded in God's dealings with that people in history and God's commitment to that people. So Paul is adamant both here and in other places in Romans that, that God is irrevocably committed to his people and so remains true to his promises. It seems to be an objection to Paul's gospel that Jesus makes God unrighteousness by making the covenant God made with Abraham pointless. Right. And so Paul sets up that objection in verses 1 through 8. Has God abandoned Israel, and is he therefore unjust? And then he attacks the premise in verses 9 through 20. God's not unjust, people are unjust, which he, he explicitly, in making this, calls back to the arguments he's just been making in chapter 2, and then gets around to actually answering the objection. No, God has not abandoned Israel. He is now revealing his justice in a new way. So this is like in a presidential debate when someone begins by objecting to the premise of the question and then moves on after doing that to actually answering the question. Okay, we actually need to read this. Um, Yep. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were faithless? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our unrighteousness serves to confirm the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us by saying, let's do evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So that's block number one. That's setting up the question which he's going to answer. Okay, let's move to block number two. What then? Are we better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written. And then there's a huge chunk of scriptural quotations that we're going to discuss in a little more detail in the next section. These are concerned with showing that God is righteous and humanity is not. So we're going to bracket that for a second, and then we're going to skip to verse 21, chunk 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed and is attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who are faithful. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are now justified, made righteous, rectified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, that is Jesus, God put forward as a hilasterion, no chance I'm translating that word today, by blood through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous, that he himself is righteous, and that he justifies or makes righteous, rectifies, some might say even delivered, the one from the faith of Jesus. Some tricky Greek at the end were intentionally leaving unclarified. Okay, so let's recap the logic of how Romans 3 is progressing. So in verses 1 to 8, we have the question of, does God abandon his promises to his people? Is he being self-contradictory or even unjust or unfaithful or untrue? And then in verses 9 to 20, Paul comes in and says that these objections are basically invalid because humanity is guilty and unjust and not God. Attacking the premise. And then in verses 21 to 26, which we'll talk about in more detail here in a minute, Paul actually gives the answer to the questions that have been raised in 1 to 8 by saying that God will not abandon his people. He has now revealed his righteousness in a brand new way, overcoming all sorts of human shortcomings and failures. So Hayes says that if we read this as a coherent argument, the issue at bottom is a question of God's integrity. Look at verses 1 through 8 again. There are three things that are being called into question and put in parallel with our shortcoming. It's our faithfulness and God's faithfulness, our falsehood and God's truthfulness, our unrighteousness and God's righteousness. Hayes is going to argue that God's faithfulness and God's truthfulness really have to be read as attributes of God. These are not substances that God is transmuting to humanity. These are not resources or statuses God is simply conferring on us. Paul is discussing the faithfulness of humans, the falsehood of humans, and the unrighteousness of humans. And, by extension, God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, and God's righteousness. Three virtues or attributes of God. So this lines up really neatly with what we saw in Qumran. That is, righteousness is one of a couple terms that are being used together to describe the positive attributes of God. And it's probably like we're going to see in a bit, because this cluster of terms comes straight from a psalm. In fact, a psalm that Paul quotes. So Hayes talks about Dikaios and Itha'u as an attribute of God, but he also wants to make clear that attribute in this sense isn't actually a static thing here. And this is a theological point that he's making. 
God discloses God's integrity in his activity of remaining true to what God has promised. So for Hayes, you can, you can hear a kind of covenantal story coming through. God's righteousness is demonstrated in his irrevoc- irrevocable commitment to maintaining a covenant relationship with his people. Which is what gives the objection to Paul teeth, mm-hmm. because it is a comprehensible objection to Paul's gospel that if Torah is no longer requisite, then God is being false, faithless, and unrighteous. And Paul doesn't want to say that. Right. Okay, then we've got to move back up into that katina of citations of Jewish scripture. This falls into block two, verses 10 through 20. We're not going to read through all of these. There are a number of verses that are connected by this theme of righteousness in the Septuagint, this rut dick, delta iota kappa. These get translated into English with words like judge, just, righteous, rectify, justify, that whole nexus of terminology. So if the logic of Romans 3 itself holds good, the question is what do we do with the transition from verse 20 to 21? Because there is a clear transition happening there in Paul's writing. In verse 20, Paul concludes his argument of 9 through 19 by citing from Psalm 143.2. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been revealed and is attested by the law and prophets. And Hayes points out again that people always read these as more or less unrelated. It's true that there's a transition here, but often this text is presented with a new heading, and these two passages, twenty verses 20 and 21, have no logical relationship. And that's wrong. Basically, everyone notices that Psalm 143.2 is being quoted here, right? But they usually read it as simply wrapping up the section from 9 to 19. It's, it's just Paul's way of, of ending things and putting a nice bow on it. And they don't see it as affecting anything coming in to verse 21. And if Hayes is famous for anything, it's that Paul was reading his scriptures in context. And often, if you read around the little excerpt that Paul happens to quote, you discover that the rest of the passage is illumined by the original context of the psalm. And by original, I mean in the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. So why don't we take a look at Psalm 143 and discover with Hayes that the language that frames this objection and that frames Paul's response is littered throughout the psalm. So Psalm 143 in the Septuagint. O Lord, listen to my prayer. Give ear to my petition in your truth. Hearken to me in your righteousness and do not enter into judgment with your slave because no one living will be counted righteous before you, the passage that Paul quotes. Make me hear your mercy in the morning, because in you I hoped. Make known to me, O Lord, a way in which I should go, because to you I lifted up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I fled to you for refuge. Teach me that I do your will, because you are my God. 
Your good spirit will guide me on level ground. For your namesake, O Lord, you will quicken me. In your righteousness, you will bring my soul out of affliction. And in your mercy, you will destroy my enemies and ruin all who afflict my soul, because your slave I am. We should say something really quick about grammar. In your truth, in your righteousness, in your mercy. This in word in English is probably an over-literal translation of a preposition that both in Hebrew and in Greek can be used instrumentally. And Hayes argues, almost certainly correctly, that a better translation would be by, that is, by your righteousness, by your mercy, by your truth. And what does God do? He brings my soul out of affliction and he destroys my enemies. He hears my petition, listens to my prayer, and hearkens to me. He saves me from my enemies and makes known to me a way in which I should go. Sounds a little bit like a salvation-creating power, doesn't it? A little bit. And like we saw in Qumran, and like we saw in Romans 3, 1 through 8, in the Psalms, this is pretty clearly an attribute of God. It is his mercy, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and his righteousness are things which are true of God, are attributes according to which he saves the people with whom he has a covenant. I think we should also step back and appreciate the unique thing that Hayes is doing here with his reading of Romans 3, which is he's noticing that the psalm isn't just wrapping up that preceding section about human failure and inability to, I guess, be righteous before God. He's recognizing that, but he's also recognizing that it's actually informing the meaning of the verses that come after it, too, about God's righteousness and God's saving power that's being revealed. And it's being revealed in a specific place, and I think we should talk about that next. So where is it being revealed? Well, the righteousness of God has been revealed, as is attested in the Law and Prophets, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who are faithful. Jesus being set forward as a hilasterion by blood through faith was done, why? To show his righteousness. And then in verse 26, we get a clear example of how Paul is thinking uh, about God's relationship to righteousness. Paul says that God himself is righteous and that he justifies or makes righteous or rectifies people. So it's clear from verse 26 that this righteousness is something that's God's own. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and the one who makes righteous others. Now, at this point, Hayes notes that there is really no possibility that tekaiusunetheu can mean something like an imputed righteousness. He's basically shut the door on that reading of Romans 3 entirely. It just doesn't make sense in the logical progression of Romans 3, and it doesn't make sense in the context of the psalm that he's quoting explicitly. So if we go back and reread the theme of the letter, uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. That's a very Kazaman-sounding phrase, the, the God's saving power. To everyone who has faith, Jew first and then Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So, theme of the letter is the revelation of God's righteousness. 
Is God righteous? Yes. And this is shown through the faith of Christ for faith, probably ours. For the record, these passages are botched in a lot of translations because you have to make so many interpretive decisions in rendering the Greek, but nowhere quite as badly as in the New International Version. So at the end of the day, as Hayes argues, this actually provides a better basis for Kazamon's account of Dekaiosunetheu as a salvation-creating power than any sort of potential Qumran parallel. We really just need to go to the OT Psalms and see how those are being pulled through and activated by Paul in his letters. Right. Paul isn't exchanging letters with desert ascetics. The desert ascetics and Paul are both reading the Psalms. And the Psalms, pretty unambiguously, don't describe imputed righteousness. They describe a God who is interested in saving his covenant people because he's a righteous God, because he's a truthful God, because he's a faithful God, because he's a merciful God. And righteousness shouldn't be split off from these other terms as if it's some special technical word. It's one of God's attributes. Displayed, according to the Psalms and Qumran, in his relationship with God's people, and displayed, according to Paul, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's been almost 40 years since Hayes wrote this article for JBL, and some stuff has changed in terms of the scholarly discussion about Dikaios and Atheu. Hayes' outlines of the sort of main approaches, are, they're a bit dated, although they still basically hold up. I think two contributions to note on the topic of Dikaios and Atheu, or the righteousness of God, is um, N.T. Wright has written on this quite extensively in a number of works. And he reads that noun phrase as referring to God's covenant faithfulness, specifically. You got a little bit of that in Hayes' article when he would appeal to covenantal imagery, but Wright actually thinks that the noun phrase means covenant faithfulness. Right. Hayes points out the parallelism with the faithfulness of God and the righteousness of God, but he doesn't say these terms are synonymous. They're just two examples of God's attributes. Right, and the other scholar to mention who's done a lot of work on the righteousness of God in Paul is Douglas Campbell. He's basically staying with some of the, the basic insights from Kazamon on the, the, the righteousness of God being a saving power that reaches out and rescues people. Dr. Campbell ultimately adds more details to what that saving activity actually looks like than Kazamon does. But his work is pretty much dependent upon Kazamon being right. So I don't think right is exactly wrong. That is, God's righteousness is an aspect of his faithfulness to the covenant. Or maybe it's the other way around. God has a covenant because he's a righteous God. But to say that this, this term means covenant faithfulness is not how translation works. It's also not what those words mean. So that's the mistake, is he's saying, he's making a, a, a claim about how to actually translate right. those specific words. And the right and others sort of in what we would call the new perspective on Paul camp do this with other words too. Yep. For example, Paul's use of the phrase works of law or ergonomu, they tend to translate that as ethnic boundary markers. Not that it's, it's connoting ethnic boundary markers, but that those words actually mean right. something like ethnic boundary markers, which is just, a, it's, a, it's a mistake. Right. 
And the quote-unquote translation, covenant faithfulness, probably inaccurately narrows what righteousness of God captures. For a lot of Jewish authors, God isn't totally disinterested in the people with whom he does not have a covenant. And presumably, his righteousness, his justice, also ultimately applies to them. And this, I would suggest, might be relevant for Paul. Okay, flyover. Protestants read righteousness of God as a resource, status, substance imputed to the people who decide to believe in Jesus. Kazaman says, no, technical apocalyptic term, meaning the saving power of God. Sanders says, kinda, and points out this is one of several attributes that is used in parallel with mercy, goodness, truthfulness, and other nice, virtuous attributes of God. Hayes comes along and says, okay, let's go back and look at the OT Psalms, especially the ones that Paul is pulling through into his letters, and see how those might be informing the meanings of the words that Paul is using. And so when Hayes looks at Romans 3 and reads through the logic of Romans 3, how it progresses from the question of whether or not God remains faithful when people are unfaithful, and answers that by saying that God's righteousness continues through and saves people, even though they are unrighteous, we find that same sort of logic going on in Psalm 143. And it happens that Paul actually quotes that psalm explicitly. Both parts of the logic of Romans 3, the idea that humans are unfaithful, untruthful, and unrighteous, and the corresponding idea that God is faithful and truthful and righteous are found in that psalm. And so it's, it's not that Paul is using the psalm to wrap up the section about what we would call human depravity or something like that and just stopping it there. The psalm is actually informing all of the stuff about the righteousness of God in the verses that follow. And one parting methodological note. If you are reading Romans 3.20 and on by itself, asking how does Paul say I'm getting to heaven, and ignoring the fact that he is pretty clearly responding to a question he set up in Romans 3.5 using the exact same vocabulary he uses in Romans 3.20-25, through 25, you're doing it wrong. Romans is a letter. Romans is an argument. Strong claim, but it can't be understood in tiny excerpts extracted from the situation he's addressing and the extended argument he's making. Hayes compellingly argues that Paul in Romans is concerned with defending God's righteousness against certain objections to Paul's own gospel. Next time you read through it, I would suggest maybe picking up this article and reading it alongside Romans 3. It's so helpful. It's eight pages. Yeah. Read the article. It's phenomenal. All right. Thank you, John. You're welcome, Ian. We are going to have you back whether or not you want to. That sounds lovely. Please stop here. I think Romans is the worst book in the New Testament to read in translation. Hmm. It is the one that is hardest to understand. Yeah. In yeah. Ah. Uh...